palace takes on a very different feeling at nighttime. During the day, it's still very much that party palace that it was built to be. Um, has a very happy atmosphere. It's usually filled with school children running around and families enjoying a day out um, and people just standing and looking around them in awe. But at night, when the sun has set and we've closed those big old wooden doors, the palace takes on a very different atmosphere and it's very sort of tangible. And it really is like you could just reach out and touch the past. It's fascinating. Welcome to the British History Channel with me, Philippa Lacey-Brule, and to our latest historian interview. If you've been here before, thank you for coming back and supporting this channel. I hope you enjoy everything you are seeing. If you are new here, then a big warm welcome. If you love British history, then you are definitely in the right place. So please take a look back through the channel. There are plenty of historian interviews, mini documentaries and virtual tours for you to watch. It's also the place where you can join me live each Wednesday at one o'clock for a tea time history chat live. Now, today I am talking to Sarah Slater. She is also known as Hampton Taught Hampton Court Tour Guide. Let's get this right. Hampton Court Tour Guide on Instagram. And um, I'm going to talk to her about what it's like to guide at one of the world's most iconic historical sites. Now, Sarah joined Historic Royal Palaces, who run Hampton Court Palace in 2008 as a state apartment warder and guide. She studied uh, through the Open University and trained as a guide lecturer. She holds her white badge as an affiliate of the Institute of Tourist Guiding. She leads tours at Hampton Court Palace and indeed guides my groups when we visit Hampton Court Palace for the Anne Boleyn tour each May. Sarah has a passion for the palace, its history, the art and architecture there, but also has a particular interest in the human stories and though about those who have lived there, the social history, now, as usual, members of my British History Patreon club have submitted their own questions for Sarah, which I will put to her after the main interview. Now, that section makes up the extended ad-free version of the episode, which members of my Patreon can access. Now, if you're not already a patron, check out the details of all the great history lover benefits, including putting your own questions to future guests and, of course, taking part in our brand new book club, historical book club, um, introduced in 2023. And that all comes with your membership as well. It's just £5 a month. You can find all the details for that at www.patreon.com forward slash British history. Now, Sarah, welcome to the British History Channel. Thank you for joining me today. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> so I've given everyone a bit a brief introduction to you, but can you uh, introduce yourself in your own words, please. Yeah, sure. So my name's Sarah Slater. I am one of the guide lecturers at Hampton Court Palace. Um, essentially, I'm an affiliate of the Institute of Tourist Guiding. Um, I'm sure many of you may have heard of the Blue Badge Tourist Guides, which you might well see sort of around London and other areas. Uh, the Institute of Tourist Guiding has three different badges that people can become qualified for. Um, a Blue Badge generally does a whole area. So for instance, London, the southeast, south central heart of England. You get green badges, which are generally sort of cities. So, for instance, Southampton. And you get white badges, which are uh, one sort of specific location. Uh, so I have a white badge, which I am very proud of. I was <laughs> um, wondering what the difference was. Thank you. For oh, that. yeah. Yeah. So a white badge, this one, as you can see, well, hopefully you can see the focus mm. isn't really picking up, but um, it's got the logo there for Hampton Court Palace. And that means essentially I am an expert on Hampton Court Palace. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's actually a, a really good qualification to have. I'm really proud of it. The uh, exams are very arduous. So uh, it's it's good. If you can get a, a guide who is qualified, you know you're getting the best. So I've worked at Hampton Court Palace for 15 years now, which uh, has gone by in an absolute flash. I do say work loosely because they do say that if you enjoy your job, you never work a day in your life. And I can tell you that is honestly true. I have loved every single moment of being at Hampton Court Palace. Back in 2008, I started as a State Department warder. 
which are now called palace hosts. They're the people who wear the red coats. Um, so I would be welcoming guests on the gate, standing in the rooms to answer questions. Um, and after I'd only been there a couple of years, an opportunity came up to guide. And they asked me if I would like to um, train to be one of the guides. Uh, so I went through the training process and I've been uh, guiding ever since. And now, I, of course, I no longer... Um, I'm no longer a palace host. I am just a guide now, uh, but I absolutely love it. I live about 10 miles out from Surrey, uh, sorry, from Hampton Court Palace in Surrey. Uh, so it's not too arduous journey either. It's very nice and easy to get to, but I do absolutely love the palace and all aspects of it. That's wonderful. I mean, just, you know, we, we, I know you from there, um, James Peacock, obviously Tracy Borman, when you... When you all post, you know, like that's your office. That's where you work. <laughs> that's incredible. I know. So, so, but heritage is your second career. So, what, what, what? I, and clearly, it was the correct choice. But what made you decide to move into heritage? And and was it Hampton Court Palace you had an eye on specifically when you were making that move? Absolutely. So I've actually had quite a varied career. Um, I actually started off in acting many, many, many years ago. I was a child actor and stunt woman, believe it or not. Oh. <laughs> so I was in a, a couple of films, lots of TV adverts, modelling work, etc. So acting kind of feels like it's always been in uh, my blood. I had an agent since the age of three. Um, but then uh, when I got to secondary school, my parents sort of said you know you need to get a proper job <laughs> so I went into banking um oh. which was fun when I started you know um I did really love banking I love the camaraderie involved in the office um and I've done various different jobs within banking as well um from business advisor to mortgage advisor um and it always used to be really lovely when you could uh, actually get to signing date and people could sign for their mortgages and you knew that perhaps they were buying their first house but I had my two children and uh, I was working part-time at the bank and it was always a bit of a you know trying to sort of juggle home life children working in a career um, and just by chance really I happened to see the job at Hampton Court Palace and I'd always had a love of history. History was my passion. Um, I uh, was a member of the National Trust, English Heritage, and I saw this job come up and I thought, oh my gosh, that sounds really interesting. So I actually phoned them, you know, to ask a few more details and they were advertising for full-time staff, but I asked if they would consider a part-time uh, post and they, luckily for me, they were more than open to it. Uh, so I went along with my interview and um, I got the job. I couldn't believe it. Uh, so I suddenly was working in something that to me had always just been a passion, uh, a hobby, if you like, um, you know, sort of going weekends would be spent going and visiting historic houses. I don't. I'd always lived near Hampton Court Palace. Um, there's, you know, many, many photos of me being pushed around the gardens in my pram or toddling around the gardens. Um, so it always had a special place in my heart. So to be able to to now work here is amazing. Wow, wow! I, I want to ask you about your stunt work, but we'll do that. We'll do that another time. <laughs> another day. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into um, sort of looking at you know what's the interesting, intriguing parts of uh, being a guide at uh, at the palace, can we talk a bit about its history? Since so you know we're Yes. We are talking to an expert here. And um, we have this incredible, it's sort of a complex of buildings. So that's how I think of it, which splits literally down the middle into these two different palaces from two distinct periods of history. And each of them seem to be just frozen in time. I know that's wonderful work as well that the, the palace does to, to interpret it that way. Um, so can you explain to people how we get to the building that we have today <laughs> yes it's a very complex history um, so to be able to sort of put it down into a couple of minutes is going to be really hard um, most people think that Cardinal Wolsey turned up in 1515 and dug some foundations and built a palace um, many other people believe that Henry VIII built the palace but actually there's a much longer history to the site um, 
there was actually a manor house here before Wolsey began to build his palace. And that manor house was very huge. It was very elaborate. It was actually leased by a gentleman called Giles Daubeny, who was actually the chancellor to King Henry VII. And we know it must have been very big and grand because the king, um, Henry VII, and the queen, Elizabeth of York, would often visit. Um, and uh, the, the building and the land was actually owned by the Knights Hospitallers. And that goes right way back to the 13th century. Um, so essentially when... Wolsey arrives in 1515, he takes on a 99-year lease for the palace and he transforms, well sorry, I should say the manor house, and he transforms it into the palace. He puts a whole new wing on the west, which is base court, which is the sort of main gatehouse where you enter today as a visit, uh, as a visitor. Um, and uh, he, he built this beautiful palace for entertaining ambassadors, hosting events. And of course, there were some grand royal apartments for the king, Henry VIII, and also his queen, Catherine of Aragon, when they visited. Um, now, of course, uh, I'm sure all of your listeners will be aware that Wolsey falls rather dramatically from favour. And uh, he well, it's debated whether or not he gave the palace to Henry VIII or whether or not Henry VIII took it. Uh, but of course, it then becomes a, a royal palace and Henry VIII begins to extend it as well with Anne Boleyn. They put on a whole new wing on the eastern side. So they're expanding it out the other way. They also put a, a couple of extra wings on the front as well. Um, and they build a whole new suite of royal apartments, um, which is actually then used by every subsequent monarch, uh, including uh, not a monarch at all, but the Lord Protector, Oliver Cromwell. He uses Hampton Court Palace as essentially his weekend residence. Um, and that's actually why the palace survived, because if Cromwell hadn't decided to use it, it may well have been sold off and broken up. We then, of course, have the restoration of the monarchy in 1660. And it's when William and Mary come to the throne in 1689 that there is major changes. Um, they actually, with their architect, Sir Christopher Wren, they demolish all of the Tudor Queen's apartments that have been built for Anne Boleyn. And they also actually demolish two thirds of Henry VIII's sort of privy lodgings, private apartments, and they rebuild in this Baroque style. Um, which gives us the palace of two halves. Many people think that um, William and Mary and Wren destroyed all of Henry's apartments, uh, but actually two thirds survive. Um, some of them are not recognisable because they were altered later by George II. <laughs> um, so, and then of course, um, it ceases to be a royal palace under George III when he becomes king in 1760. He decides it's no longer suitable. So um, it's at that point that the palace became what is known as a grace and favour residence. Um, to sort of uh, simplify it, uh, if you had done something great and good for the country or um, um, or perhaps if you had died and your widow uh, would be given rent-free accommodation at the palace. So this palace turns into this huge suite of apartments. Um, it was like a, its own little sort of village, its own little apartment complex. Um, and essentially, again, that is what uh, helps it to survive because of course, if it hadn't been turned into grace and favor, again, it may well have been demolished, um, uh, fallen out of favor, etc. Um, so it's quite nice that its history evolved over time and that's essentially why it has survived. So it's always had a purpose. Yes. It's changed, yeah. but it's always had a purpose. And yeah. what I like about it is, you know, its purpose was as um, an entertaining space. You know, Wolsey would entertain here. Henry VIII entertained here. And it still is today. Um, you know, we're entertaining the visitors who come or uh, people can also um, hire the venue for functions and events so people can get married here. Um, so it's still following the exact same purpose that it had originally. That's really fascinating. I hadn't actually realised that Wolsey hadn't started. I knew that I knew there was a manor house before, but I'd assumed he'd flattened it and started again. But he actually added to that then. And yes. So 
we believe that the part of the Tudor kitchens were actually Giles Daubeny's kitchens and they were just extended by Wolsey. Um, and there's a few other sections as well, which we think might be um, from the time of the Knights Hospital is the time of Giles Daubeny. But most of them are just sort of internal walls that have been um, sort of added to. But yeah, the, the Tudor kitchens, um, part of it, they believe, was Giles Daubeny's. Ah, that's really interesting. I've learned something already. So if we could go back in time and visit the palace, then have all of that history. This is going to be really difficult, isn't it? What year would you like to go back to? And why? Okay, so um, there's a, there is actually one year that I would really like to go back to, because there's a specific person that I would want to meet. Um, now, I would like to go back to 1562. Um, and it would have to be the summer. So maybe September. Um, maybe October. And I would like to meet Dame Sybil Penn. Now, Dame Sybil Penn was an extraordinary gentlewoman of the Privy Chamber to Queen Elizabeth I, but she had actually been there for many years. She was initially employed at the palace in 1538 to be the dry nurse to King Edward. Uh, sorry, well, I should say Prince Edward, who goes on to become King Edward VI. Um, so she's she's employed by Henry VIII to be the dry nurse for Edward. So she sees uh, Edward growing up. She sees the marriage arrangements for Anna Cleves. She sees the divorce annulment for Anna Cleves. She sees the marriage to Catherine Howard. She sees the arrest of Catherine Howard. She sees Catherine Parr, um, you know, bringing the daughters back into the family, as it were. Um, she then, of course, uh, is there when Edward becomes king. She also sees the establishment of the Church of England. She then sees Mary become our very first ever crown queen of England because she's recorded as riding in Mary's funeral procession. She then rides in Elizabeth I's coronation procession. Um, and of course, she is one of the women who nurses Elizabeth through smallpox when she has smallpox at Hampton Court Palace. Unfortunately, she catches the smallpox from the Queen and she dies at Hampton Court Palace on the 6th of November 1562. Um, so she would be a really, really interesting person to sit down with and uh, have a bit of a NASA, shall we say. I'd love to meet her. So, yeah, that's my year. <laughs> that's a very, yeah, that's that's a very good reason as well. Yes, yeah, so she's just been on the periphery of all of those events. Oh, goodness, yes, to be able to access her knowledge of them and her Absolutely. opinions of them would have been amazing. So she would have first-hand accounts of most of that. It would be very interesting. Yeah. And not a name you hear a lot about, maybe because she did no. not survive the smallpox. No. So um, she was, again, she was just a, she was a dry nurse and then she was a, a gentlewoman of the Privy Chamber. But um, So she's not, one of the big names she isn't someone that we've really got any sort of portraits of that survive or anything like that but I think she'd be a very interesting lady to chat to mm, definitely so um I, I want to talk myths I mean the, the palace is known for ghosts and myths but are there any um are there any myths uh, about the palace you know things that we've been told that which aren't accurate or true, but that keep, I don't know, it seem, seem to, with the retelling, become accepted. I'm thinking the Victorians must have done something <laughs> at some point to make up something that we still believe. But so, come on, let's, what's, what's okay. the other You must get them asked. So there, there's, there's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot. But the one I picked is the tunnels. Now, when I first started at Hampton Court Palace, people always talk about the tunnels under the palace. There are rumours that there were tunnels to get to the Mitre pub, uh, which is across the road, uh, tunnels all the way to Oatlands Palace and to Nonsuch Palace, and how people could come and go secretly. Um, the thing is, of course, there's been a lot of excavations under the palace at various points. No tunnels have ever been found, but they haven't been ruled out. There's still this rumour that the tunnels exist. Um, now, the year after I started, back in 2009, they did a huge archaeological dig in Base Court because they, when I started, Base Court was actually laid to turf and then they decided for the um, anniversary of Henry VIII's accession, uh, so in 2009, 500 years, 
they decided to recobble base court. I'm sure if you visit today, you'll see that it's all uh, the grass, the turf is all gone. It's all cobbles mm-hmm. now. But of course, they did. Uh, they took the opportunity to do an archaeological dig. They found all of the original conduits, um, the the pipeworks, etc. Uh, the drainage. It was really interesting to see it all laid bare. And there is one of the, what looks like a tunnel, it is uh, one of the sort of uh, drainage conduits, but it's open. um, It's got glass over the top so you can look down and see into it. And that is in one of the sets of base court toilets. Um, It used to be a ladies toilet, but now it is both genders. So uh, it always used to be a shame that I could take ladies in there and show them the tunnel, but I couldn't take the men. But of course, now I can take everyone in. Uh, It always seems a bit strange when I say to people, you know, follow me into this toilet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'd love to know if the tunnels really are there. Didn't they they appear in Peaky Blinders? They they seem to insinuate. I think they did, actually. Yeah, yeah, because I forgot about that. Yeah, they did. You're right. Any others? Were there any? Are there any really common ones that the visitors might? Um, About you? I'm not. Oh gosh, I'm not really sure. That off the top of my head, I'm just trying to think. I mean, obviously, most people always think that um, the palace was built by Henry VIII, which of course isn't true. Um, There's always myths about the ghosts and where the ghosts are and what they're doing. and uh yeah i think um there's there is quite a lot i mean there's a lot of things you always get people saying oh the the tudors were all really short weren't they um no they're not uh you know henry the eighth we know was um sort of six foot one and a half um and we know exactly what size he was and height at any point in his life because of course we've still got all of his armor um which is like an outer shell so we know exactly how big he was um and uh, yeah, lots of other rumours, you know, you hear people sort of will say, oh, well, of course, in the Great Hall, I have heard people saying, you know, in the Great Hall, uh, there was just straw on the floor and people um, sort of would uh, urinate against the tapestries and that sort of thing. Um, absolutely not. There's no way you would have done that in the King's house. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, well, I, I mean, I hadn't realised to what an extent Henry had built, actually. So I was thinking most of it was there with Wolsey and he sort of updated it. Whereas from what you're saying, he said, it sounds like they actually built on quite a lot. Um, they did. So yes. that's I mean, all, all out the Eastern side. So a whole new wing was put on for Anne Boleyn. Um, and that went along the North side of what was called Cloister Green Court. Um, this was the new courtyard and it went into the East and Henry VIII, um, There had already been a long gallery along the south, which was Wolsey's, but Henry altered it, he extended it, and he bought it along the north side to meet up with Anne Boleyn's apartments. Um, Of course, the sad thing was, no sooner was the paint dry on those apartments than Anne Boleyn, um, of course, uh, fell and uh, was beheaded. Um, Jane Seymour became the queen, and uh, but she sort of took one look at Anne's designs and said, no, I want something of my own style. So Anne Boleyn's apartments were re-altered um, and uh, redecorated, um, which is, of course is why it's thought that Jane Seymour was not in those apartments when she gave birth because they were still being finished to her specifications. So yeah. she actually, um, it said, believe she gave birth to Edward in what had been the room set aside by Wolsey for Catherine of Aragon off of uh, Clockport. So really the first ones to actually use the Queen's apartments um, was of course Anne of Clee, Catherine Howard and Catherine Parr. Um, interestingly, when Oliver Cromwell became the Lord Protector, he chose to use the Queen's apartments rather than the King's. Um, and we can only assume that that's because perhaps they were a bit more fashionable because uh, they would have been uh, at that point refitted out for Maria. Mm. Did it have a better view? Did they? Have- <laughs> no, no, because obviously oh, the king. Yeah, the, well, I well personally, I don't think so. <laughs> um, the uh, obviously the south side has the view over the privy gardens, which were set aside for the king, and the river. Um, whereas the uh, east side had views over Home Park, which was obviously part yeah, of the hunting ground. So uh, maybe Oliver Cromwell preferred it. We don't know. Mm. <laughs> it would be interesting to find out. <laughs> Mm. so um I'm just thinking back to the myth about the height does that am I right in thinking that comes from the beds 
people looking at the the length of beds and assuming that that meant that everyone was short but they mm. actually used to sleep or it's more likely that they slept kind of almost not sat up but at so, a, yeah so they propped up mm. and also the doorways as well you know a lot of the doorways are fairly small um and again people sort of say oh that's because they were really short but actually it was probably more of an economical thing because of course if you're paying to heat a room um and you open a big wide door and let all the heat out when people are coming in and out um you're not going to keep it hot for very long um so it's believed that that's more economical and it's one thing that's quite interesting at Hampton Court Palace is when you go from the uh horn room into the great watching chamber or from the short gallery into the great watching chamber you can still see the original outline of the Tudor door going up the side because they've removed the plaster to expose it. But actually, the door you're going through is a huge Stuart door <laughs> that was put in by um, William and Mary because um, I think by the time they came to the throne, uh, door small doorways were, of course, very unfashionable. And you wanted to have a nice big doorway uh, mm. to show off the uh, height and the architecture, etc. Mm. And the dresses have got bigger and well, yeah I mean a little yeah a little bit not really so much William and Mary but um yeah by the time you get to the Georgians my goodness <laughs> yeah you need a big doorway yes I do wear um because uh obviously I, I didn't say when I introduced myself but um I of course do cos- uh, costume tours or tours in business attire and uh yes when I'm wearing my Georgian gown I definitely need all the doors opening as wide as possible okay. Oh yes, well Sarah does her tours for us in um, in her Tudor gown. They look fabulous. So I'd love to. I'd love to. I need to come and do a Georgian one so I can see you in your uh, Georgian dress as well. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, so with William and Mary, I meant to ask this earlier. Again, am I right in thinking they, by that point, they sort of had ideas of moving, or they would prefer the court to have been further out of London? I think William was asthmatic which of course at a time before proper treatments must have been very, very scary. And they wanted somewhere, um, you know, with, with better air, I suppose. And that's why they didn't just take to Hampton Court Palace for, for no particular reason. They were looking at basing themselves there. Am I right in saying that? Absolutely. Yeah. So obviously London at that time was very dirty um, and obviously smoke, et cetera. Like you're correct, William had asthma and they the clean air outside of London at Hampton Court Palace would have suited him much better. Not only that, but he was big into his hunting. And of course, uh, Hampton Court Palace has wonderful hunting grounds. Um, and that's why, actually, when you walk around the palace, um, you'll notice that all the staircases are really fairly shallow. And it said that that was designed with William's asthma in mind. He also had a ground floor well, it's believed he had a ground floor bedroom as well as his first floor bedrooms. And that's so that if he was suffering with asthma, he could just stay on in his private apartments on the ground floor. Um, the other thing you'll see a lot of as you walk around Hampton Court Palace um, are lots of barometers. Um, so in the Queen's apartments um, and also in uh, William's apartments, you'll see many barometers on the wall. And that's because the weather changes did really affect his asthma. Um, so he kind of needed to know uh, you know what to expect shall we say um but yes they they really really they did take to Hampton Court Palace they loved the location they just hated this dirty dusty old Tudor palace that was on the site um because, because of course it was very old-fashioned by that point mm. um their intention was to build a new palace with Sir Christopher Wren that would rival Versailles mm. uh, over near Paris in France and of course uh luckily <laughs> for us um uh William ran out of money, essentially. Um, so they demolished all of the Tudor Queen's apartments, like I say, two-thirds of Henry VIII's apartments, and rebuilt that whole eastern courtyard in the Baroque style. The only thing that they were going to keep of the Tudor Palace was the Great Hall. They were going to realign their entrance. They were going to enter from Bushy Park. They built this beautiful big long chestnut avenue, which still survived. Um, you would have Come along that Chestnut Avenue from the north, you would have come into the Great Hall, which was essentially would have been a, an entrance hall. And then you would have gone into this beautiful Baroque palace. Like I say, though, luckily they ran out of money. So only that eastern section got uh, completed um, and they had to finish that on a bit of a shoestring budget, it has to be said. Um, so, of course, they had to retain uh, the Tudor Palace. So we were very lucky. 
We are lucky. I, I think we we are lucky to have the Baroque Palace as well. Mm-hmm. As as tragic as it is that we lost Anne Boleyn's apartments, for instance. But um, and I think did we lose Henry VIII's bathroom? I'm I'm intrigued by the the, the rumors <laughs> of this Turkish bathroom that he had. Yeah. So we have we didn't lose the bathroom, but we did lose the bathroom. Right. <laughs> so um, when Henry was extending. One of the first extensions he put on was to the rooms that Wolsey had set aside for his use. Um, So he built something called the Bain Tower, which was essentially a sort of uh, double height extension on the back. Um, And that he he moved um, his uh, private bedchamber into there. And he had an ensuite bathroom. He did have a beautifully decorated bathroom. Um, it, there's sort of records of how um, the paintings that he had put in there and the gilding work, etc. He also had a little treasury library, etc. But of course, he then extended further um, along the south, like I say, into the east. Um, and he had another um, bedchamber, privy lodgings put in. Um, so the Bain Tower became more more sort of part of the state apartments. Um, it was sort of uh, the next section on from where people would come to um, see him for audiences. Whereas the privy lodgings, that big extension, um, we don't, unfortunately, we don't even really know all of the rooms that were in that section because most of the records we've got are from when people, you know, from when work was done. Obviously, we've got a lot of the... Uh, invoices still etc but people would write home and they'd say you know I went and saw the king and I saw this decoration and he's got this in that room and that in that room whereas because nobody ever went into the privy chambers we don't have that sort of detail unfortunately I'm just trying to think if there's any example of a Tudor bathroom I know we've got privies still Acton Court for instance but I'm trying to think if we've got I don't. I, I. I've never come across an example of a, of a, a, you know, high class or royal bathroom. I'm not sure. I mean, I would. Their whole I would need to have a look is, into that and yeah. see if one survived. Obviously, we at Hampton Court Palace we still got Caroline's bathroom, uh, but that's much later. That's Georgian. Mm. Um, that's uh, 18th century. But you you do get to see Caroline's bathroom uh, if it's open. <laughs> so. Uh, so we've talked about quite a few of them already, but many, so there's so many people have lived in the palace. Of course, it's got a long history, but also all these different purposes that we've talked about. Um, is there anyone other than Sybil who we've already mentioned, anyone who's lived there whose story you wish, you know, you, or you'd like to see told? Maybe someone we haven't heard of or we've heard of, but we don't hear their story in much detail. So um, there was a family um, called the Gordons. They lived there in the Grace and Favour period. And uh, believe it or not, one of them, she lived there for over a hundred years. Um, but they were a real, she, she, uh, when they moved in, she was a tiny baby and she lived to just over the age of hundred. So she lived there her entire life. Um, but they were a really interesting family. They were always getting themselves into scrapes. Um, the father, the husband, he actually mysteriously disappeared one day, never to be heard of again. Um, unfortunately, they, they were really struck with tragedy as well. One of the daughters died at the palace. Um, her, She went to warm herself in front of the fire one morning when she got up and her nightdress caught light. And unfortunately, she perished. Um their son got uh, a telling off for defacing um, the no smoking signs. Um, they nearly caused a fire in the gardens. They allowed their bathroom to flood one day and the water poured down into the state apartments. Um, they were a, a, they were a very, very interesting family. And I would love to hear more about the Gordons because uh, they were just a grace and favour family um it, but uh, very very interesting so yeah it's definitely the gordons and sybil penn for me i'd love to I'd love to know more about sybil penn and hear her story told yeah um so i mean you're there so often what's your favorite thing to point out to people who come to the palace 
Okay. Again, so many. Yeah. <laughs> so hard to choose. Um, but I'm actually going to say the stained glass windows in the Great Hall. Um, when we first start training as guides, we have to come up with um, a little 15 minute talk about an object or a person, a, a personality. Um, so my uh, object was the stained glass windows in the Great Hall. I always used to get quite upset <laughs> when I was first training um, that people would dismiss the stained glass because they say, oh, it's Victorian, you know. Um, but it was done by Thomas Willamont, um, who was one of the preeminent stained glass artists of his day. It was made between 1840 and 1846. Uh, so it was commissioned when, uh, of course, Victoria, Queen Victoria, was reopening, the, well, opening, I should say, the palace to the public. But Willamont really thought about what he was putting into that stained glass. And he tells Henry's story. Um, so in the east window, which is where the sun rises, we have Hen how Henry came to the throne. We have Henry right in the centre. But below him, we have the two branches of his family. We have the Lancasters uh, surrounded by red roses. We have the Yorks surrounded by the white. And these two branches, of course, come from Edward III down at the bottom and it tells us his um you know his ancestry and how he came to the throne as the sun moves around the south side of the palace we go through various other people's stories so we have the bay window which shows us cardinal Wolsey as it moves around the south we go through the first three queens so each queen has a window that's dedicated to them um the first three so Catherine of Aragon, Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour are on the south side. On the north side, where the sun never goes, and Henry Anna, Henry's personality was a bit darker, um, we have, of course, have Anacles, Catherine Howard, and Catherine Parr. Um, all six wives were descended from King Edward I. So each window actually takes you from uh, their uh, ancestry from Edward I. So you start in the bottom left-hand corner of each window, you go up through there, ancestors coats of arms you go across the top you go back down the bottom right until you get to their coat of arms with henry and then and also the windows are filled with their badges so for instance in uh catherine of Aragon's, you've got the pomegranate you've got the sheaf of arrows for um castile and Aragon. you've got um in Anne Boleyn's, of course, you've got the falcon as well. Um, when you get round to the west window, which is where the sun sets, you have Henry's legacy. So you have Henry in the centre. You have the six wives, coats of arms on either side of him, which, of course, instantly tells you it's not Tudor because there's no way he would have had all six wives next to him at once. Um, but underneath him, you have the three children. You have the legacy. So, of course, as the sun sets in the very bottom right-hand corner, it goes through Elizabeth's coat of arms and then it's dark and that's the end of the Tudors. So I love the stained glass windows. They're beautiful. I had no idea there was such a story. I, I, I'm right. You've taught me something as again, because I, I admit to being a little bit dismissive of Victorian stained glass and the fact that that was so that there's, there's a purpose to every pane that that, that was designed there and where they were placed. Um, and of course, the continual story around the whole of the Great Hall. That's incredible. Yeah, I love it. Next time you come, remind me. I'll try and point it all out to you. But um, it is, like, uh, like I say, I used to have to talk on it for 15 minutes. There's so much more than 15 minutes work. <laughs> but um, it's just, it's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. So what do you find surprises people the most about the palace when you're talking um, Gosh, usually that there are two halves. Um, most people just assume that there is Henry VIII's palace. Um, mm. So they assume that Henry VIII built it and he's pretty much the only one that ever lived there. Um, so when you explain that there are actually two halves to this palace, you know, essentially when you step through that doorway at the end of the long gallery, you essentially step forward by 150 years. You know, you suddenly are in this completely different architecture and time zone. Um, uh, so that really surprises people. Um, and just that there is so much history. Like I say, the fact that um, uh, every monarch, including, um, of course, our Lord Protector, uh, lived there. 
um, until George III. The fact that it then became grace and favour and had so many other people living there who, again, were uh, equally, you know, many of them are equally famous in their own right. Um, and then, of course, the fact that today it is uh, still an entertainment space, but it is also, of course, lots of offices. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but as you walk around some of the courtyards, you'll see that the windows have um, sort of uh, tra uh, films on them, uh, showing pictures perhaps you know a gentleman in a room chatting or something um and of course that's because it is hiding a modern office behind that window you know and it would sort of dispel the the, the beauty of it if uh, you walk past a window and saw someone sat on their computer um, but of course <laughs> it is the head office for um essentially for historic royal palaces yeah. um which is the wonderful charity that looks after uh, the tower of london hampton court palace kensington palace kew palace Hillsborough um and uh, uh of course of course the banqueting house as well mm. yes oh the group of group of properties that are looked after by historic royal palaces and just some of the most iconic um in the country aren't they and in the world probably absolutely um, they do they do an incredible job so what's your Oh, actually, no, you've just reminded me again of something else. Oh, no. Because <laughs> we've, we've already spoke about, um, you know, Jane Seymour uh, gave birth not in the apartments that were being uh, altered for her, which have been destroyed since, but probably, but, well, back in, in part of the palace that survives. And it's just reminded me because you're talking about, of course, this is a working palace. It's a working place. There are offices. There are training rooms of which... <laughs> of which the room that Jane Seymour is believed to have given birth in absolutely is. yeah so um obviously the Bain Tower and the rooms that were set aside by Wolsey for the King and Green they still survive um now Henry's rooms are actually um well most of them are actually what we call the Cumberland Gallery, which is a little art gallery. You would never know that you were in Henry's rooms when you were in there because they've been completely redecorated by the Georgians, by George II. Um, so you'll be wandering through what was Henry's uh, audience chamber, um, his privy chamber, or perhaps his presence chamber, and you wouldn't have a clue that that is where you were. Um, the rooms above were, of course, the Queen's apartments. And... Um, Essentially, yeah, one one has been uh, one room has been changed into um, the changing room for the uh, costumed interpreters. Um, and the other room, which was the bedroom, is a training room. <laughs> so, again, it's all Georgianized. You wouldn't know that you were in a Tudor room, except for the fact it still has the Tudor fireplace. Uh, so when you go in, um, you walk into what you think is this sort of blue painted room. Um, but then the second you step through the door, you look to the right and you see this huge stone fireplace. Um, and of course, as we've already mentioned, these are the rooms where Jane Seymour gave birth. It's probably also the rooms that, of course, uh, Anne Boleyn would have used while her, the, the new chambers were being built. And of course, it is the rooms that were used by Catherine of Aragon as well. Um, interestingly, um, Wolsey's motto and uh, beast which was the griffin survived so they are still on the fireplace but the little um uh the little stone uh, escutcheons above it they've been hacked off so whether or not they were Catherine of Aragon's or uh Anne Boleyn's we're not sure um but they have uh they've gone but Wolsey's uh motto is still there mm, interesting intriguing mm. um and you're very good because if you're ever guiding on my groups and you can get us in there you do but it's not on the visitor route so um I feel very special when you manage to get us yeah. in there <laughs> um do you have a favorite part of the palace I do um well I mean I've got lots of favorite parts <laughs> <laughs> so as well as guiding around the palace um and the gardens I also am one of the few members of staff who's trained uh, to take visitors up on the roof as well um, so I do take roof tours up and I absolutely love it up there um, it's 106 steps to the top uh, and then you have to sort of climb through this little door and then you are up on the roof and my goodness it is just amazing um, I mean obviously you get 
very up close and personal with those magnificent Tudor chimneys that Hampton Court Palace is famous for. Uh, fantastic views, obviously, across the grounds and the gardens you can see for miles. Um, and of course, you get to see the palace from a completely different angle. You're looking down onto the roof. Um, one thing that I found quite interesting when I first went up there, when you look down on the roof for the great kitchen, um, the roof tiles are patterned. So they're actually laid out in a zigzag pattern, which of course, and these are black and red tiles. So you never know that that was, you know, from, from the ground, you never know it was there, but of course you get up and um, yes, you, you can book private roof tours. I, I have to quickly add in. Um, I'm not sort of tempting you with something you'll never get to see, but uh, it, you have to book a private tour to go up on the roof. So I love the roof. I love the Great Hall. The Great Hall is just magnificent. I mean, when you are trained to be a guide, um, you're only meant to spend five minutes at each stop. Um, but the Great Hall, I, I tend to break it down into three stops so I can do about 15 minutes in there because <laughs> you need it. The Great Hall is, you know, absolutely magnificent. Um, and then, of course, I also love... Um, going up onto the third floor and the fourth floor up into the attics, um, sort of, you know, going around all the rooms that um, are mainly used for storage now. Um, but I absolutely love it up there. Mm. Fantastic. It must be amazing to have access to all those different places as well. It is. I feel very privileged. Um, but of course, it does mean that when you go and visit other places, I always want to know what's behind the door. I'm used to being able to walk. I know there's something the there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I bet. So, um, and do you um, get a different reaction from people? Um, you were talking earlier about when you're in costume and when you can either do it in business dress or costume. Do you get a different reaction from people when you're in costume? And is there a difference between the two costumes if you do? Yes, and yes. Oh. <laughs> so um, you do get a different reaction. People suddenly do treat you very differently. Um, and it does depend on what you're wearing. Um, so for instance, if I'm in my Georgian gown, uh, I do notice that suddenly people will open doors for me and, <laughs> really? you know, sort of be very deferential. Um, they, it's amazing. Um, the the sort of uh, responses that you get from people um you do also get people feeling that they can just uh, suddenly touch you though which is quite interesting um you know like when you're pregnant and people felt it sort of think it's okay to touch your belly mm. um it is exactly the same when you're in costume people just want to uh, even yesterday I had someone rubbing my my stomacher to see how long it was um I know it's, it's yeah <laughs> I've heard this from other costume uh, costume interpreters actually yes yeah. I, I would say that if you visit, please always ask before you touch. Um, it is but, a uh, but yeah, it, yeah, it's interesting. People do suddenly sort of, uh, a lot of people do suddenly treat you as though you really are uh, a lady of the court, um, particularly when, yeah, I'm in my, my Tudor costume um, because, the uh, well, I say my Tudor one. Uh, at the moment, I'm uh, very, very grateful to my colleague Siobhan, who has lent me her Tudor costume this year. Um, but uh, yeah, people do really... Um, sort of gasp and look and think oh wow and of course it's lovely because it gets people can rather than just looking at picture people are actually seeing what you're wearing um and seeing all the layers and what's involved and um of course when you put a costume on it does automatically make you stand differently and uh walk differently and uh yeah, yeah I love it I've only worn Tudor dress I've not worn Georgian but you definitely end up walking differently and so yes. you, can't, you just can't do anything else can you? No. You, have to, you have to stand up straight absolutely I'm always intrigued by the difference as well you know I've seen you in costume and obviously not in costume especially when when you've guided us and you've guided us in costume in the morning and then you'll come and have lunch with me and it, you know obviously I know it's you in, when you're in costume and you when you're not but you realize just what you know when you're looking at a portrait of someone for instance and it's 500 years ago um I I just to imagine them as a normal normal person as in if you, you know if you were contemporary to them which you know I know there's there's people now um who 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 take portraits and and make them look modern so that you can kind of get an idea and it's so powerful actually mm. it brings them to, to being a real person if you see what yes I mean. and that's something I always really try and concentrate on when I'm guiding or giving a lecture um 
I want people to remember that these were real people. They weren't just names and dates and they weren't two-dimensional. These were three-dimensional people. They were exactly the same as you and I. They had many, you know, they did have different belief systems to what we have today. Um, they didn't have the conveniences that we have today. Um but they were the same people. They still loved it exactly the same way as we did. They still had the same feelings, the same thoughts. Um, and I always try and get that across. Mm. Wonderful. So I've got another few questions for you before we move on to the patron only section. But um, we're going to have to talk about ghosts yeah. because the palace <laughs> is, um, isn't it? <laughs> it's quite notorious for its ghosts. So um, you must get asked about it all the time. But what are your favourite ghost stories? Okay, so I think you have some, don't you? There are many. Okay, <laughs> I love the ghost stories. Um, I do lead the ghost tours. Um, we haven't run the ghost tours since COVID. Um, you can book a private post tour. Um, at the moment, but we're not running the public ones. But um, I am fascinated by the ghosts. I'm fascinated by people's reactions of coming into the palace at night. Um. The palace takes on a very different feeling at night time. During the day, it's still very much that party palace that it was built to be. Um, has a very happy atmosphere. It's usually filled with school children running around and families enjoying a day out um, and people just standing and looking around them in awe. But at night, when the sun has set and we've closed those big old wooden doors, the palace takes on a very different atmosphere and it's very sort of tangible. And it really is like you could just reach out and touch the past. It's fascinating. Um, I love to tell the story of Catherine Howard. Um, so Catherine Howard's ghost is said to haunt the Long Gallery, which is more popularly known as the Haunted Gallery. Um, and um, without having to go into her whole story, um, essentially, the Haunted Gallery seems to have a very odd atmosphere about it. Um, Catherine Howard's ghost is heard to scream and she is heard to scream at night. Uh, and people who have heard her have reported that it's this unearthly scream followed by a deathly silence. Her ghost is seen. She is seen to run along the gallery um, and get to the door to the King's Royal Pew scream, turn with her clothes all disordered and then get taken back along the gallery as though perhaps she were being dragged. And it's said that she is reenacting one of her last moments at Hampton Court Palace because the legend has it that when she was under house arrest in her rooms, at one point she broke free and ran along the haunted gallery, or long gallery, as I should call it. Um, she got to the door to scream for Henry. It was said that she believed that if she could perhaps speak to him one last time, she might uh, be able to beg his forgiveness. But of course, she didn't know that Henry wasn't there. Henry had actually left the palace. Um, the guards obviously grabbed her and took her back to her rooms. But it's said that once she was beheaded, of course, her ghost returned. Um, we have lots of strange things happening in the Haunted Gallery as well. Um, a lot of working dogs really do not like the Haunted Gallery. Um, there was one particular occasion where we were expecting a visit from um, Her Late Majesty. Elizabeth II and um, the police sniffer dog was brought up to sweep through the route and when you think these police sniffer dogs they're highly trained aren't they um, but it didn't matter what the handler did the dog flatly refused to enter the gallery and just lay on the floor whimpering and crying uh, they actually had to radio for another dog to be brought up and the second dog went in no problem but the first dog absolutely no way um, and the other thing of course the the big thing is that we have women who will faint underneath a particular chandelier in the Haunted Gallery. And um, I have had, uh, personally, I've had two women go, um, but um, they didn't fully faint, but they they were about to go. We had to quickly sit them down. Um, and, uh, but yeah, we've had, we've had many, many women fainting there. Uh, so, but I do like to tell that story just because I like to tell Catherine as she was, you know, because, um, I don't know what it was like for you, but when I was growing up at school, she was always very much sort of, you know, oh, the one who was a bit naughty and was a bit of a child and, um, you know, committed adultery. And of course, that isn't her true story. So I do like to tell that one. 
Mm. Obviously, we have the ghost of Sybil Penn, one of my favourite characters. Well, I was um, wondering then if she has a ghost in as yeah. she died there. Oh, I'm quite oh, okay, so <laughs> Sybil Penn is our most frequently seen ghost. Um, so we have many, many ghost stories. Um, well, at the beginning of lockdown, I actually started to write down all the ghost stories I was aware of. And believe it or not, I got to about 130. <laughs> um, and I'm sure there's more out there. Um, but Sybil Penn is the one who has the most recorded sightings. Um, so she is usually seen um, either in the southwest wing. So this is the one between the main gatehouse and the river. Um, she's seen inside the wing. She's seen outside the wing. She haunts uh, um, in front of the palace near the moat. She haunts the cloisters around Base Court. She haunts the gardens on the south side. Um and again, I like to tell her story because uh, for a long time, she had this really bad reputation. Um, it all goes back to the time when Princess Frederica of Hanover was living at the palace. She was living in that southwest wing. And uh, one day she walked into her baby's nursery and she saw this woman in grey leaning over the cradle. Now, of course, she screamed for help. Uh, the servants came running, the woman had disappeared. Um, and of course, it then came to light that it was the ghost of Sybil Penn. And we know it's Sybil Penn's ghost because she looks exactly like the stone effigy of her tomb. Um, unfortunately, the baby died less than two weeks later. So Sybil Penn gets this awful reputation um, as sort of being a, a harbinger of death. Um, but actually, lots of other people have seen her and recorded their sightings. And one particular person called Jane Craig, she describes the ghost of Sybil Penn as being um, very um, gently kind and very lonely were her exact words. Um, and so I don't think that she had come to uh, bring death to that baby. I think that she, you remember she was a nursemaid in life. She was a nurse to uh, Edward and possibly Mary and definitely Elizabeth as well. So uh, I like to tell her story and say, no, actually, I think she was probably maybe trying to help the baby, maybe, you know, alert someone that the baby needed attention. Uh, so I like those two ghost stories, but there are so many more. <laughs> oh, wow. It's, it's, uh, uh, do, do people see ghosts at particular times? I'm thinking, does it have to be quiet maybe the winter dark I don't know I can't yeah. imagine there's much ghost activity in the height of summer when there's thousands <laughs> of people streaming through so funny enough uh most of our ghost reportings are from October and November <laughs> um, yeah. uh, a lot of things seem to happen um around about that time um two of our ghost stories are actually very much linked to the 2nd of November as well, which is actually All Souls Day, the Day of the Dead, um, because that's the day that uh, uh, Catherine Howard, of course, um, well, uh, the um, the rumours surrounding Catherine Howard were presented to Henry Gate. Um, and it's also the day that um, two skeletons were discovered in one of the courtyards as well. And they are also said to uh, haunt the, uh, that area. So, yeah, a lot of things happen October, November. Mm. Yeah. And people are primed for it, I think, at that time of year so. as well. Yeah. It's just when we're, days are getting shorter, nights are getting longer. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's been on it. Chill in the air. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect for a ghost sighting. They used to do um, sleepovers at the palace. They come back yet. No. <laughs> so we used to do the sleepover. Um, we used to do that twice a year. So uh, you would come for the whole evening, you'd get a meal, you'd get a lecture. Um, and again, I used to do the tours for that. So we um, on that, we did various tours. We used to do the salacious gossip tours, uh, which was where we told all the really naughty, juicy history. Um, we used to do ghost tours. We also used to do the macabre tour, a, a tour as well, which was when we used to uh, take you up on the third floor and tell you some of the rather gruesome deaths that have happened at Hampton Court Palace as well. Um, and uh, yeah, and then you'd get to sleep in the in the cartoon gallery. Well, I say sleep. <laughs> it depended on how many people were snoring um but, but yeah they were great fun but no um at the moment there's no plans to to bring oh them. we need to get those back because I didn't get to do one 
I thought there'd be ample opportunity and now they've gone. I want to do one. <laughs> so got at least one booking if uh, if they come back. So I've got one more question before we wrap up the main part of the interview and then go on to the patron questions. Now, this might be the most difficult question based on what you've told us so far. If you could guide anywhere else, where would you choose to do that? So this was a really difficult question um, because there are so many places that I absolutely love. Um, and of course, I would love to guide at places like Heva. I absolutely love Heva Castle. Um, but actually, I'm going to plumb for Windsor. And that is because of the fact that no one is allowed to guide at Windsor, um, apart from their own staff. Um, but Windsor Castle, I would love to guide Windsor Castle because it's, again, seeped in history. Absolutely mm. seeped. Um, lots of different periods of build, again. Um, and, of course, still uh, a, a royal um, home. So, yeah. yeah. Again, another survivor due to Cromwell taking a liking to it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Again, been in con I mean, it's been in constant use. So for, you know, nearly a thousand years now. It's amazing. It is incredible. Good good choice. So before we um wrap up this main part of of, of the interview, um um let us take this opportunity to let people know where they can find you online um and see what you're up to. So um I have a website. Uh, with a couple of my colleagues and that is just called the history guides so if you have a if you google the history guide you'll find us um and i of course i am also on instagram and facebook um i'm hampton court tour guide so if you if you have a look for hampton court tour guide hopefully you'll find me i must admit i haven't been posting very regularly lately because i've been incredibly busy um but i hope to get back on with that this summer so uh yeah you can find me there and of course if you ever do book a tour um you can book again i do take private bookings you can find me on TripAdvisor. um but you know you can book me through the palace so um you know if you ever want to, a roof tour or a costume tour um please do contact the contact centre um, and uh, I would love to take people around, show them all the special bits. That's it. Well, I, I love your tours. So, yeah, I would thoroughly recommend you as, a, as anyone's guide at Hampton Court, definitely. Thank <laughs> so you. thank you so much for that. No, thank you. So Emma has asked, what is one room or area that isn't open to the public that you wish was? Oh. 